We will be in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let's pray. Lord, now as we uh, take time to look at these verses and study them, as we seek to understand what Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, we pray for your insight and your spirit guiding our thoughts. Lord, we want to understand the passage, but we also want to apply it and we want to live it out. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be prompting and encouraging, challenging, convicting whatever is necessary in each of our hearts. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Many, many, many years ago, printing presses were just starting to really get complicated and complex. And if you wanted to get a printing press that would do a whole bunch of stuff, it could even fill a couple of rooms. And there was a company in South America that decided they were going to they were going to get and expand their printing. And so they ordered a, a really big, complicated press from the United States. It was shipped down there. It got there in all the different crates and stuff, and they began putting it all together. They got it all together, and they couldn't get it to run. It just nothing they did would make it run. And to show you how long ago this was, so at that point they sent a telegram to the company they purchased it from and said, listen, this thing's not working, send someone now. And so the company kind of talked about it for a minute. They said, well, you know what, sounds serious. Let's send the guy that invented it. Let's send the guy who designed this particular printing press. So that's who they sent down. And it just so happened he was very, very young, and he got off the, the plane in this country, and um, they looked at him, and they thought, man, this kid can't know anything. What's wrong with him sending this you know, rookie? And so they were really upset about it. And uh, before he even had a chance to really look at the printing press, they said they, you know, did another um, telegram back, and they said, "Listen, send us someone who's got experience, someone that knows what they're doing. This this guy isn't going to be of any help." And they wired back, "He invented that machine. He designed it. He will be able to fix it." And that was the end of that. Once they understood that, hey, it was, it was his machine. He knew what to do with it. Why is it? When everything goes wrong in our lives, that we try all kinds of ways to fix it on our own. All of us do that. Why do we think that we can handle the difficulty or the problem by ourselves? Why do we refuse to go to God? Hey, He made us. He designed us. He knows us. He saved us. And so the question is, why? Why don't we do that? It's kind of an encouragement as we jump into this passage <clears throat> to see what's, what God does with that. But the first section is verses 15 to 17, and, and one of the titles on that would be Jesus made it all uh, because He's the Creator. So He's the sovereign Creator. He's the sustainer of all the things that are seen and all the things that are unseen. And uh, there's two parts to what we're looking at today. One is Jesus made it all, and the next one is uh, the whole idea of Jesus saving. Let's start with verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The image of the invisible God. Again, stop and think about that. Okay, we can't see God the Father. We don't see Him. But Jesus has come to reveal God to us. And so when we see Jesus, we see God. Uh, he is the visible expression of the invisible God, if you will. That's the way Philip's translation puts it. Um, another 
play with putting it is from Hebrews 1.3. The, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus is God. And, and, and as a result of that, because He takes on human flesh, He's able to help us understand and, and learn what God is really like. So He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, and now the word firstborn is used in three different ways in Scripture. Uh, it's used, first of all, in the literary sense. <clears throat> there we go, in the literal sense. And that's Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, Jesus, and laid him in a manger. That's the literal sense. There's a figurative sense as well. Um, God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn. Now, it isn't that this whole nation was the first nation ever, anything like that. That's just the terminology God uses when speaking of the people of Israel. And then the third one is the one that we see here in this passage. It's a place of superiority. It is someone who has um, supremacy or uniqueness. And, and that is that is Jesus Christ. He's firstborn, not because he's born first, uh, and not because it's a figurative sense, but because in, in a very real sense, he's above and beyond everything. He's the highest rank in the universe. He has the most authority in the universe. He is God's Son by eternal relationship. And it's the priority and position of His title that gives Him that name, Firstborn. So when you see Firstborn attached to Christ, it's not that He was Mary's first son. That's not what's being referred to, except when you're talking about Mary. Most of the time you'll be, you'll be talking about, okay, so He's the He's the prime. He's the, he's the one that's in charge of everything. He's the one who has the position of power and authority. And that's the firstborn. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And again, stop and think about what that means. You know, all of the world and the creation, and, and, and we look at it and we're in awe of many of the things that are out there. I was looking at pictures from the Hubble telescope this week and just sat back and went, wow. Think of all that color and beauty that we don't even get a chance to see without something like that. And, and that's all over the place. The wonder and the grandeur of God's creation. But He's the individual, the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. It says, for by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. So by Him, all things were created. He's completely supreme in creation because He's the Creator. And as the Creator, His creation is under Him in authority. Um, So by Him, all things were created in the heaven and on the earth. So it's upward. And then also as you look outward, all of that's included in all things were created. And then He goes on to say, uh, by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. So you've got the visible things that we're talking about. And then that's the things we see around us. And then the invisible, the things that are not seen, but he still created. Um, and, and the description of those things that are invisible are the next set of words. Um, <clears throat> whether thrones or powers, dominions, whether rulers or authorities. And in both of these cases, we're not exactly sure how the words all relate to to what, but they're all referring to angelic and demonic beings that are being referred to here. All the invisible things we can't see. And yet God is over all of that as well. And then it says, all things were created by Him 
and for Him. So every single thing that was created, God did it. There's no secondary cause. There's no, not something else came along and said, I'll give you a hand. God <clears throat> created. Jesus created it all. And they were all created by Him, it says. And that means He had the power and the plan to carry it out. And He did. And not only by Him, but for Him. And, and the whole thought there is that everything that was created was to show the glory of God. And one of the things that, that we'd see in that is the Creator's hand and everything that's going on. Now, since all things <clears throat> natural and supernatural were created through Him, they are subject to His authority. We need to kind of remember that. Anything in all creation, there's a, they are subject to the Creator. Um, so because He's the Creator, He has total supremacy over all of His creation. And for that, we are really thankful. Now, we don't see Him doing things and controlling things the way we may like Him to. But He still is the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. Verse 17, kind of <clears throat> the last verse in this section speaking about the wonder and the grandeur of God Himself. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So He is. Now it's interesting, in the Greek when you say something like this, He is, it really means that He was, He is, and He will always be. That's the sense of that word there. He is, and, and He is before all things. Everything began with Him when He said, let there be, and there was. And in Him all things hold together. He, con- he contains things and, and, and maintains those things. And He rules over those things. So, when we think about God, we think about the fact that He's before all things, but that in Him, He also holds everything that He created together. Um, <clears throat> I find that one of the most incredible things for me. And, and He continues to hold things together. Um, and apart from Him it, not continuously holding all things together, they'd fly apart. If you study some of what happens in the universe or some of what happens microscopically, and you begin to see the wonder and the glory of how God did all of that, and you begin to understand that He is, right from the time He created and right on up until now, the one that has His hand sustaining and creating. So things don't disintegrate into chaos because He created them and He sustains them. Now there's an implication here for us. Verse 16 says, For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. All things. Isn't that incredible? Isaiah calls our attention to one specific little part in Isaiah 40, 26. He says, Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by name. And because of His great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. I don't know about you, but there are some things in nature that take my breath away. To be somewhere in the mountains especially, and to be totally dark around and be able to just look up at the sky, it just takes my breath away to see it all. One of the trips that we took to Mexico with the teens from here, we're coming back from a little village and we stopped and we were treated to just a whole bunch of shooting stars all over the place. It was one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen in my life. 
as I was thinking through these things, this song came to mind. Indescribable, uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All-powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall on our knees and we humbly proclaim. Incomparable, unchangeable, you see the depths of my heart. Think about that. And you love me the same. You are amazing, God. So verses 15 to 17 describe the wonder and the grandeur of creation and God's creating it and, and God sustaining it. All of that is coming through in these three verses. Psalm 147.2 says this, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. And He binds their wounds. God is personal and caring, full of love, full of mercy. And then verse 4 says, He determines the number of stars, calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Again, the writer of the psalm is, is just maybe outside looking around saying, ah, this is incredible. I, don't, I can't believe this. So there's this awe inspired by the things that God has made. Um, look in the Grand Canyon. Stand on the beach and see the waves crashing. See the snow-capped mountains. All of that just kind of makes us go, wow. And this, this God who calls every single star of the trillions and trillions of stars that are out there, calls them by name. Look at what he says in verse 6. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. So this amazing, incredible God who we don't have words to even describe Him, He cares about us personally, individually. That's the part that blows my, my mind when I'm thinking about it. You know, it doesn't take Him any more energy to, to maintain all of those galaxies in place. It doesn't take any strength on His part to keep the oceans moving and doing what they're supposed to do. He does that, and he does it with absolutely no effort at all. And so he's got the vast universe at his command. And, and what an amazing thing. The angelic hosts are his to command. And this all-powerful, sovereign God sustains and cares for the weak and the humble. That's us. He is not too busy running the universe to care. We can count on Him to save and sustain. There's another implication. Verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And, and, and again, we think about what that might look like from a scientific perspective if he can keep an atom from blowing apart or um, why would he refuse to, if he can do that and, and create all the other things, why would I refuse to let him work in me? And when we feel like our lives are flying apart in all different directions and it seems like all that is happening in our lives is uncontrolled chaos. When we don't know what to do, but we have to do something. 
Then we go back to, okay, He is before all things, and all things hold together in Him. I wonder how Naomi must have felt. She uh, and her husband took their two sons, and they moved from Bethlehem all the way to Moab, and they thought this was going to get them away from the uh, drought and all of the famine that was going on in Bethlehem. And, and, um, of course, they're there for a period of time, and her husband dies the sons are married, and they don't have any children, and then they both die. And so you've got Naomi far, far from home with two daughters-in-laws, both of them foreign. And you know the story. Eventually she decides to go back home to Bethlehem, and Ruth goes with her. She refuses to be left behind. <clears throat> you see all of the pieces that God put in place. And you see him bringing them into Bethlehem, and you, you you hear the uproar. And Naomi says, "I'm hey, I'm, I went out full, I came back empty." And yet, God is working, and He's working through Ruth, who does an incredible amount of work just so that they can eat, but continues to be someone who's trusting God. And eventually, you know the whole story: Ruth and Boaz meet, they're married, and, and Naomi is taken care of to such an extent that everybody in town says, Ruth is better than seven sons. That's about as high a compliment as you could give in Israel. And of course, Naomi and or Ruth and Boaz are part of the Messianic line. But stop and think about all of that. He created all things and He holds them all together. And and nothing happened in that scenario that was going to take God's plan and put it away or destroy it or cause it to not go where it's supposed to go. It, It went exactly how it needed to. Remember the story about the illustration? You know, they were complaining about this complicated press wasn't running. Well, who could fix it better than the inventor? The guy that designed it. And when we are thinking about what's going on in our own hearts and lives and struggling, who can do better than going to the Lord Himself who designed us, created us, and sustains us? Hebrews 1.3 says this, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. When He had cleansed us from sin, or when He had provided purification for sin by His death, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. If God can can and does sustain everything we see and everything we can't see, if God does all of that, we should be able to trust Him with whatever's going on in our own lives. Jesus came and lived that perfect life, died a horrible death, paying for our sins, so that when we believe that He died for us and put our trust and confidence in Him, our lives are saved. We're born again. We become sons and daughters of His. And, and, And that grabs a hold of us. And that's something we must hang on to. Because the reality is everything else could totally fall apart, but nobody can touch that. I belong to Him and He belongs to me. And nothing changes that. So as we're facing difficulties, as we're going through struggles, as we look ahead and say, man, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this. We look around in this total chaos and we say, Lord, 
can I live like this? That's when we go to the Lord. And we continue. And we remember that He's the sustainer, the controller, and that He loves us. And, and I've heard people say, well, I would go to God, but it's, it's just such a little thing. Go to the Lord anyway. I, I mean, it's too big a thing, really, and, and I don't know that God can handle it, and I don't know that He can do anything about this. Go to the Lord anyway. Well, I, I would go, but it, it's embarrassing. He knows already, by the way. <laughs> go anyway. I think I can make it on my own. No, you can't. Go. He sustains all things, and in Him all things hold together. So let's take the big, the small, and everything in between to Him, and He's promised to walk with us and guide us and take us to where we need to be. So verses 15 to 17 the whole idea that Jesus made it, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all, of the seen and the unseen. These verses 18 to 20 are Jesus paid it all. So on the one hand, he made it all. Now he, we're talking about how he paid it all. And, and, and this whole section that Paul wrote, um, may have actually been an early hymn in the church that many people say the, the structure of it and, and the rhythm poetically and all the rest of it point to the fact that this was one of the early hymns and Paul just quoted it right into the letter he was sending to the Galatians. Verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So here we are. We're going to start talking about the church. And he says, okay, you've got the body, which is everybody. We have one head. And that's Jesus. He is the head of the church. And all of the rest of us are just part of the body. And that's Christians all over the world. We all have the same head. And that's Jesus Christ. So He's the head. It means Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign over creation and He's sovereign over the church. He's the beginning. That doesn't mean that He's the very first person to rise from the dead. He's the beginning in the sense that He's the first person to rise from the dead that didn't die again. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And again, firstborn in the sense of rank or position uh, from among the dead. From being dead to the place of highest authority. And that's what happened with Jesus. He died, was in the tomb three days, and on next Sunday we'll be celebrating the, the resurrection and His ascension on into heaven. So everything... In everything, he has supremacy, or he is the principal, or he is the the one that is above everybody. Um, he is the primary sovereign and only God. So he's sovereign of creation, sovereign over the church. Now we see because of creation and redemption that he receives honor for the supremacy and preeminence of who he is because of what he's done. So there's that whole idea of he is supreme or he is preeminent and, and that means he's, he is it. He's all there is. And, and on one level, what we're saying is because of who you are, the Son of God, and because of what you've done, lived, died, and rose again and ascended into heaven, we honor you and we hold our hands and our hearts up to you. 
A really good question to ask ourselves at this point would be, is Christ preeminent or supreme in my life? I'll leave you with that one to kind of ask the Lord this week. At some point just say, Lord, do I live in a way that shows you're supreme in my life? Do I live in a way that shows you are preeminent? I'll let you pray that and work that through with the Lord yourself. It's a good question to ask from time to time. Verse 19 goes on to say, For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him. Now here we have a whole bunch of things kind of going on here. God was pleased to have all His fullness. And on one level, what that means is that all of God is in Jesus Christ. All His fullness, all of who He is, is, is in Christ. God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. And, and the, the way the tense is set up here, it's a permanent dwelling. It's not a coming and going. It's dwelling in Him permanently. This quote kind of helped as I was thinking this through this week. To say that all this divine fullness dwells in Jesus is to say that He is fully God. Okay, so uh, He was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him. That means Jesus is God. So when we have Christ, we have all of God in human form. Verse 20, he goes on to say, and through Him to reconcile, so He's pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus, in Him, and through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. So you've got the the Creator and the Sustainer of all things is now paying the debt that we couldn't pay. He is the one that's paying for our sins. Not His own. He didn't have any. But He pays for our sins through His own death. And that's why we can be reconciled to Him. And, And that whole idea of reconciliation is to remove the hostility and enter into a a relationship, restoring of a relationship, or starting a relationship. Um, So he reconciled all things to himself. And he says, things on earth, things in heaven. And and the thought there seems to be that all of humanity on earth and, and all of the angelic and demonic hosts of heaven, those are the things that he is referring to there. He's able to reconcile to himself all those things by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. We're reconciled to God only, only through the death of Jesus Christ. And that's the perfect Lamb of God that we read about in Isaiah 53, who takes away the sin of the world. How? By Himself going, taking on our sins, dying on a cross, shedding His blood, so that we could be forgiven. What do we take away from this? Again, let me encourage you to go back and just read these verses and and read it from a couple of different translations because it's just fun to see how it all comes together this incredible awesome picture of the sovereign god over creation the sovereign god over salvation and how we fit into all that it's all there and and he says it in in an incredible way so in verse 19 said he was pleased that all his fullness dwelled in christ verse 20 then and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Again, stop and think about that. He made peace 
but it took his death in order to be able to offer us that peace. Without the death of Jesus, there would have not been any hope for us. Because even in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the perfect lamb that was to come. It took Jesus coming and dying to be give us the chance to be reconciled to God. And Paul said this to the church in Corinth. And, and it, it, it could be our statement as well. We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making His appeal through us. And Paul's pleading with the, the, with the church to say these things and work out these things to the church and to the people in the city of Corinth. We plead on Christ's behalf. We bring you who He is and what He's done for you. We plead with you, be reconciled to God. You can be. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be reconciled just like that with God. So we're saved and we're born again. We, we, when we're saved, we're born again. Jesus died for us. We believe that He paid the price. And, and we become His. We are adopted into His family. We believe on Him and we're saved. And we pass from death to life. And we, and, and we become part of the church of which He is the head. We are reconciled to God at that point through the sacrifice of Christ. Now we need to continue to grow, and even when things are difficult and painful and hard, we still need to continually be thinking through, okay, yes, I'm reconciled to God. I belong to Him. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, just to, I, I find this really encouraging. No matter what I'm struggling with, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what hurt is going on, the writer says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him. What was that joy? It wasn't the cross. That wasn't the joy. It wasn't the pain and the suffering. It was what was going to come as a result of all of that. And that is the ability to say to the world, here I am. Believe. And you can be reconciled to God. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It's shame and sat down at God's right hand. And then it says in verse 3, Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And you get discouraged this week or maybe a little down the road something comes up and it's just like, oh man, it never ends. No, it probably doesn't ever end. But you know what? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider Him. When I'm struggling, when you're struggling, when we're hurting, consider Him. Remember what He endured. Remember the opposition that He faced. And don't get weary. Keep on trusting Him. So whatever we're facing, and there are some in this room that are facing a lot, whatever we're going through, no matter how hard, how hopeless it may seem, 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider Him and seek His encouragement and His help. Don't give up. Keep on walking with Him every step. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You. Thank You for Your Word and thank You for the just the constant reminders that You did this amazing thing for us. And that You are with us and long to walk with us no matter how dark or difficult it gets. You will not leave us. We are so thankful for that. Encourage us and strengthen us this week, Lord, we ask in Your name. Amen.